This morning, Dr. Mark Bailey is going to be speaking to us from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And um, normally, when one of the other pastors here on staff fills in for me, I, uh, I ask, or uh, I rather, I tell the other pastors what, you're, what they're going to speak on. I say, stick to the series. You know, we're, we're in 1 Peter, and just started 1 Peter last week, so I want you to continue on. But I felt a little uh, uncomfortable. You know, can I ask Dr. Bailey, uh, can I tell Dr. Bailey what to speak on? I don't feel really comfortable doing that. You know, after all, you know, he's the president, and I'm just the pastor. So um, I had Buck ask instead. <laughs> And, and Buck reported back, and he said, this is no problem, Dr. Bailey, he's happy to, to speak from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And, you know, then it occurred to me after I heard back, Dr. Bailey has been studying and teaching the Word of God for 40 years. He probably has a sermon on everything. Probably wasn't a stretch to ask him to do this, this little section of Scripture. Dr. Bailey is, is a, an excellent teacher of the Word. When I was a student, he was not yet president. He was, he was still in the classroom. He was a Bible exposition professor, and Every day that I had class with Dr. Bailey, I looked forward to going to class. And I know that you students don't always feel that way necessarily about every class you go to, but every day that I had class with Dr. Bailey was outstanding. Because Dr. Bailey's passion to know the God of the Word just comes out of him. And so it is, it's a great privilege for us to have Dr. Bailey with us this morning. I want you to welcome with me Dr. Mark Bailey. What a privilege it is to be back at uh, Grace uh, here in College Station and uh, how hospitable the church has been for this weekend. It was a privilege to speak at the iLeader conference uh, that began Friday evening and uh, found out when we arrived uh, we were in Aggieland. Uh, all the flags uh, up and down uh, University Drive East there and uh, we found out we were staying in the same hotel the team was staying in. And in fact, uh, we were staying on the same floor. This, the, the, the team was, you know, sleeping. And uh, they had guards uh, in the hallway. And I, I was right next to the elevator. And after that, the guards basically wouldn't let you go any farther than that, which was fine. But uh, they, they, they behaved themselves, I'm sure. And it was, uh, it was great. And then uh, a week or two ago, uh, Jeff Payne emailed me. He said, would you, would you like to go to the game? Now, I, I have never been to... A, a Texas A&M football game. In fact, I haven't been to a college game in about 30 years. I've been to pro games, but not college games. And so I, uh, I said, well, uh, okay, sure. Uh, and, and then I found out that uh, Jeff has access. And, uh, and in fact, uh, this is a pregame field access only pass. And I was there. Uh, I was on the field. Uh, I was in, in the... Uh, the, the clubhouse, and, uh, and, and then I got to see the inner sanctum of the locker room. Uh, the team was out, and we were in there, and I didn't go through anybody's stuff. Uh, <laughs> we were supervised and all that, but uh, I got to see the trophies, and it was, uh, I, I got introduced to uh, A&M tradition and culture last night, and it was, it was terrific. I, I know that uh, you don't have to uh, go to a Texas Aggie football game, and you don't have to go in the locker room of the Texas A&M football team to go to heaven. But, but, but why take a chance, okay? That's, that's, that's what I thought, you know. So uh, it was great. We had a lot of fun. Uh, it is great to be here, especially because of uh, the young men and women that God has brought from this church and uh, through the seminary. I feel a lot like uh, John, the 
epistle writer when uh, he said, I, I have no greater joy than to watch my children walk in the truth. Whether that was for his physical family, which I have that joy with both of my boys, uh, whether it's uh, with a spiritual family of those that you get to minister uh, alongside of or to in their lives, uh, uh, whatever that is, uh, it, it's, it's so fun. Two of your staff members work for me at Dallas Seminary. Uh, Matt Morton uh, served as a grader for Dr. Hendricks and myself and supervised our grader team in that uh, course on Bible study methods and hermeneutics that uh, Prof. Hendricks and I have taught together for now 25 years. And, uh, and then uh, Jason Poppy, who uh, is one of the, your newest staff members, he worked in the president's office with us and helped with, uh, with some correspondence and theological answers to crazy questions that uh, people write in. And it's uh, and good questions that people write in. And so uh, our loss is your gain. But it's great to, to be here with uh, uh, your pastor and staff, and uh, what, a, what a privilege it is uh, to be here. And uh, I, I know that not all of you will come to Dallas Seminary, but uh, you should think about it. And uh, we would love to have you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to that passage they asked me to fit into, and it was a privilege to study and get ready for this. Uh, I didn't have a message uh, prepared on this passage uh, for this, and so this is for this occasion, and I'm, I'm great to be, uh, great to, for me to be a part of this. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And they asked me to speak on this topic, regeneration. And so uh, the title, as you see on the screen, is uh, Regeneration Now, Next, and, and Then. It was in the days of the Revolutionary War. There lived at Ephrathah, Pennsylvania, a German Seventh-day Baptist. Not a Seventh-day Adventist, but a Seventh-day Baptist pastor in those early days uh, by the name of Peter Miller, who enjoyed the friendship with uh, General George Washington. The German Baptist community at Ephrathah had treated the wounded soldiers during the Revolutionary War, and also living in Ephrathah was Michael Whitman, or excuse me, Whitman, who was an evil-minded man who did all in his power to abuse and oppose Pastor Miller. Uh, one day, Michael Whitman was caught in treason, was arrested, and sentenced to death. But the old preacher started out on foot and walked. Uh, the whole 70 miles from Ephrathah to Betha to uh, Philadelphia to plead for this man's life. He was admitted into Washington's presence and at once begged for the life of the traitor. Washington said, no, Peter, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. Uh, the preacher explained and exclaimed, he, he's not my friend. He's my bitterest enemy. Washington cried, what? You walk 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? Uh, That puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant the pardon. And he did. And Peter Miller took Michael Whitman from the very shadow of death back to his own home in Ephrathah, no longer an enemy, but as a friend. Uh, uh, Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Uh, Think of the story from Michael Whitman's perspective. He was a traitor who was sentenced to death. He knew he was guilty of treason and deserving of punishment. And the punishment was death. He had nothing to look forward to but his execution. And one day a guard came to his cell and told him he'd been pardoned from his crime. The guard told him that he had been pardoned because Pastor Peter Miller had pleaded for mercy from General George Washington. How could that be? 
He had been a thorn in the side of Peter Miller for years. They were bitter enemies. Confused yet happy, he picked up his belongings and left the prison. And waiting for him outside was Pastor Peter Miller, who told him that he could stay with him at his home in Ephrathah. Miller had shown Michael Whitman mercy, and it had transformed him from his enemy to his friend. Paul said, God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, When we were enemies, Christ died for us. Uh, Listen to our passage in the text this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. William Barclay says there are few passages in the New Testament where more of the great fundamentals of Christian ideas and conceptions meet and come together. This is a power-packed passage. Pastor Fisher last week introduced you to the book and introduced you to that great salutation. And all of those mentioned in the opening salutation were drawn together into an audience to which Peter wrote by one experience, the experience of suffering. The suffering in this book is because they were Christians in a contrary world. And and whether the suffering was physical or uh, quite often it's psychological matters not. It's still suffering. In fact, in this short epistle, as your staff takes you through this book this fall, uh, you're going to find at least 15 references to suffering, and eight different Greek words are used to describe it and how uh, real it was in the life of these early Christians. The applications from this book will be profound for you. So I commend this series to you. Don't miss it. I'm going to be listening on the, you know, on the podcast. Uh, I want to get it as well. You see, these folks to which Peter is writing, instead of feeling selected, as was taught to you last week, they they, they experienced being rejected. Uh, they, they They were chosen by God, but in the culture, they felt they were cut off. They were sanctified, but uh, they found themselves scattered about the whole region. Uh, They they were renewed, as the text says, but uh, they were in need of revival in in how to handle this kind of pressure, how to handle this kind of persecution in a contrary world. They, They were people of hope, as we'll see in this passage, but their experience was that of hurt. Uh, Maybe that's your experience this morning as we come together around this text. Uh, Maybe you have been facing the flat for trying to live for Christ in a contrary world. Uh, Maybe you have been moved to the side and and not promoted because of your faith. Maybe you have tried to witness and have only been shunned. Uh, You who work at the university or attend the university or just out in the business world, uh, we're living in a culture in which Christianity 
uh, at least the basic principles of which were the foundation of our country and our culture, have been marginalized, if not pushed off the end of the table, excluded from the public square, and especially despised in public rhetoric. A welcome to first century with a 20 in front of it. Welcome to good material in which to uh, be transformed in, in order to live in this kind of an atmosphere. I love how our chancellor, Dr. Chuck Swindoll, pastors of the Stonebriar Community Church, put it in his book. Peter didn't try to pump them up with positive thinking. Typical Chuck. He didn't try to pump them up with positive thinking. Instead, he gently reached his hand to their chins, lifted their faces skywards so they could see beyond their circumstances to their celestial calling. As I mentioned, William Barclay says there's few passages in the New Testament where more of the great fundamental Christian ideas and conceptions meet and come together. This is great stuff. And he begins the passage with a doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is to be blessed by us in our worship because God has blessed us uh, beyond our worth in his grace. And so this really, this whole passage is really a blessing that we give back to God for his grace in our lives. And I want to give you just three reasons in these verses. The rest of the chapter is going to unpack this even more in weeks to come. Uh, But the first reason for which uh, he blesses God in regeneration is because of a living hope. Now, this living hope is uh, because of God's rich mercies. It's the blessing through the rich mercy of God. Remember I said grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's life in Christ. Uh, Mercy is not getting what you did deserve, which was condemnation and death. And and like Pastor Miller did with Whitman, uh, mercy was extended and a relationship was established. He says, blessed be God. He does it here and he does it again in 4.11 in this book. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He does it again in chapter 5 and verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is always breaking out again and again in worship and blessing and praise because of God's great blessing. John Piper said it well when he said he writes about the greatest realities in the universe, but with a worshipful spirit. This living hope is because of the blessing that comes through the rich mercy of God. It's that which motivates God to act on our behalf. And it results in our birth. He caused us, the text says, to be born again. Hence our title of regeneration. Born again through the resurrection of Christ. In other words, it's because of of Christ's resurrection power. uh, He has life within himself, John 5 says. He has the power to give life to us. In fact, resurrected life to us. Now, in the New Testament, this concept of regeneration... It's found in noun form only two times. In fact, the Greek words are palin, which means new, and uh, genesis, which, which means beginning. And you, you have a new beginning uh, mentioned in, with that term twice in the New Testament. Once that relates to life in Christ now, and once for the next stage of newness that God will create 
which is in the earthly kingdom prior to eternity. Let me just quote two passages for you. Titus 3, 5 says this, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There's that word, palingenesis. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Charles Ryrie defines regeneration as God's act of begetting eternal life in the one who believes in Christ. While faith and regeneration are closely associated, he writes, the two ideas are still distinct. Faith being the human responsibility and the channel through which God's grace is received. For by grace have you been saved through faith, Paul says in Ephesians 2. But regeneration is God's supernatural act of imparting eternal life. The two must happen together, and any attempt to place one chronologically before the other, like theologians are wont to do and movements are wanting to start, cannot, and I love his words here, the two must happen together, and any attempt to place one chronologically before the other cannot be more than a useless academic exercise. For us who are in academics, that's a, 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 a good warning. You see, if you try to put regeneration before faith, then you would have somebody who is alive in Christ without faith. And that's foreign to the New Testament. If you put faith before regeneration, how could somebody believe if the work of God had not happened in their life? That can't work. They happen simultaneously. It's like a light bulb going off, one of my colleagues says. And the Bible teaches both. Unless you believe, you won't have eternal life. But if you think you can get there on your own, You can't. Regeneration is one of the terms that's used for this concept of being born again. Uh, But the verb forms are used in two different ways. One is being born, and that's being born from above in John 3, being born by God in 1 John. Another term is being born again. Uh, It's it's like a second time, a second birth. And you you have that in, in, in John as well. And and so I want to take you on a little trip, and I want to give you a little bit of landscape, because whether the term is regeneration, uh, that's used now, or being born of God, that takes place now. Let me wait for that little landscape scenario for a moment. The, The other time it's used in the New Testament, this word regeneration, it's used of the earthly kingdom. In fact, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, it says it this way. Uh, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration. Now he's talking about a period of time. You who have followed me in a time called the, the regeneration. He promises the disciples who are wondering, does it really pay to follow the Lord? Does it really pay to trust him? He says, you will sit. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, then you shall sit on 12 thrones, he tells the disciples, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I teach and administrate at Dallas Seminary, so you would expect me to pound the pulpit hard here. Uh, We believe in a future for the nation of Israel. Uh, We believe in an earthly messianic kingdom ruled over by Christ for a thousand years prior to eternity. Uh, We believe that. This is one of the passages. 
He says there's a period of time coming known as regeneration. This will be a time when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. This will be a time when Israel is regathered and the 12 disciples will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What it is, it's a regeneration of what becomes the question. A palingenesis, a new beginning for Israel, a new beginning of God's people. The Old Testament prophet said there will be a time when God will again, that's the term that's used, again choose Israel, Isaiah 14 says. Now, so regeneration can happen now in a believer's life. Regeneration will happen then in the millennium. But the ultimate thing, the then, is what we're looking forward to. And that's when it all comes to fruition in eternity. You and I will never see the kingdom of God either in its earthly phase or its an eternal phase, without being born again. So, we, we have eternal life implanted by God. What if, I, I was just doing a, a study this summer in the upper room discourse in John chapters 13 through 17. And I, and I was struck again and so afresh with uh, Jesus praying to his Father about the relationship he has with the Father. In the opening verses of that great high priestly prayer in John 17. And he gives us one of the greatest definitions of eternal life when he says this. And he's praying to his father and he says, this is eternal life. And you can almost imagine him looking up into heaven uh, as he was wont to do through his life. Holding his hands up and saying, this is eternal life. That they may know thee, the only true God, and your son whom you sent. See, Jesus made some phenomenal claims. He he claimed that he was the only means to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he was so bold as to define eternal life is knowing the Father by knowing the Son. Jesus says in that same book, in that same sermon, in the upper room discourse to his disciples, on the eve before he would be crucified the next day, uh, I, I and my father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Everything I say, I, I get it from the father. Everything I do, I do the, because the father told me to do it. He was in humble submission to his father through his earthly life, but he was the channel by which people, you and I, come to the father in faith to receive the eternal life that only God can implant. It is the miracle and the wonder of regeneration. Now let me take you on a little landscape tour. In the New Testament, this word being born again, he says is grounded in the will of God. In fact, turn back a couple uh, pages in your Bible to James chapter 1. Two pages in my Bible, maybe two or three in yours. James chapter 1 and verse 18. What a, what a great verse. You see, being, being born again is grounded in the will of God. It says, in the exercise of his will, and Pastor Brian mentioned this to you last time, as I listened to that message in preparation for this one, uh, to, to know the linkage between the two, he, he talked about the great uh, election of God and the sanctification that God brings about. But, but God chooses whom he wills, and it's a mystery of the faith. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. One writer said, he fathered us. I sort of like that term. By the exercise of his will, he fathered us. By the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits 
among his creatures. See, it's, it's grounded in the, in the will of God, but it's affected by the spirit of God. When Jesus confronted Nicodemus, and he sort of blew this uh, pharisaical teacher's mind when he said, you know, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is going, excuse me? How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he get back into his mother's womb? That, I don't fit, won't work. And Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say to you that you need to be born again. Being born by the Spirit, it's a spiritual life implanted by God. So it's through the exercise of the will of God, it's affected by the Spirit of God. It's accomplished, as we already saw in James, by the Word of God. Peter will deal with that in 2 Peter as well when he says, being born again, not of a corruptible seed, I love this, but of an incorruptible seed, which is the Word of God that lives and abides forever. Do you know that other than God himself, there's only two things that will last for all eternity? God's word and God's people. First John 2 will say those who do the will of God will abide forever. In other words, responding in faith is God's will to the message of grace. That's what will guarantee us an eternal place with, with, with God. Well, if the word of God and the people of God are the only things that are going to go beyond that shimmering de- uh, curtain of death, it just makes sense for me to invest myself in God's word and in God's people and seeing people come to be God's people and seeing God's people equipped to share that message with others, that just seems to be great priorities in the present if that's what we're going to spend time doing in the future. So it happens by the word of God. Number four, it's characterized by a new creation by God. If anybody be in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new or new things are becoming New life in Christ. Uh, number five is it, it's designed to make us the first fruits of, of worship to God. The idea of first fruits in the Old Testament was that when you saw the first few ears of corn or whatever was coming up, you took that and you gave it to God. And by doing that, it was an act of dedication that the rest of it belongs to God, but it was also an act of faith that if God started it, God would finish it. And it was a trust that God could provide so that you didn't have to selfishly consume the first fruits. It was a way for you to put God in his rightful place first in your life. That's, that's what, it, it, you, you know what he said to us? By the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of God so that you and I would be, as it were, the first fruits of his creation. We we are the instruments and the very means of worship of our great God. Regeneration has phenomenal practical effects. Uh, Next, it's evidenced by a love from God. We love him because he first loved us, but John 4, 7 says, we know we're born of God when we love the brethren. And nobody, nobody can love like God wants us to love without having been born by God. So it's evidenced by the love from God. It's manifested in the righteousness before God. In fact, First John says, he that is righteous does righteousness. Our standing before God is the basis from which we act. And so being righteous in the sight of God, it's only becoming for us then to imitate God and to obey God. That doesn't get us salvation. It evidences, it manifests the new life that's in us. Now, if you're trying to count how much do you have to do and how often do you have to do it and who has to see it, you've missed the whole point of it all. The issue is, when you're born of God, God changes your life. 
In fact, you didn't have life as God defines it prior to that moment. Number eight, it's guaranteed to make possible the victory through God. Because without being born of God, we can't have victory over the world. But because of being born of God, we have the potential of living victoriously in a fallen world. And then we come back to our passage, and it's not the least at all, when it's purposed to give the believer the hope of God. The hope of God. We, we have a hope, and it's not a hunch. It's an objective package of God's blessing that's waiting for us. And, and that's what he begins to unpack. I have a living hope, but, but number two, I have an eternal inheritance. I have an eternal inheritance. Now, inheritance is used in two ways in the, in the scriptures. It, it's, it's used of, uh, of this relationship that God has granted to us by grace that you and I will enjoy for all eternity. Oh, you and I have been made co-heirs with Jesus Christ. You know what that means? Everything God has planned for his son, we're in on. Not a bad gig. Not a bad gig. It even beats an AM football game. Even beats a visit to the locker room. See, we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. In fact, the psalmist put it this way in Psalm 16, 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. Lamentations 3.24, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. So inheritance is used of our relationship with God. Predominantly, that's the way it's used in the New Testament. It's also used in a few passages that relate to the rewards that God has promised for us having faithfulness towards Christ. But in this passage, he's, he's really looking down the pike that what has salvation wrought? What has God guaranteed? And I want to give you four descriptors of this and sort of unpack them. Number one, uh, the inheritance that we have is eternal, and and therefore it's permanent. It's permanent. It's undying. It's undying. Uh, the, The second is that it's pure. It's undefiled. It's undefiled. Number three, it's pristine. He said it, it will not fade. When I became president, I was giving, given the, uh, the medal that has our, our uh, seal of this seminary, and uh, I wear it at uh, graduation. Uh, when your pastor finished his doctoral program and came across the stage, I was wearing that, that medallion, presidential medallion, as we shook his hand and uh, brought him across with a great victory in pomp and circumstance. Uh, do you know that, that medal... My wife has to, every single time I wear it, she has to go get it polished. Because that, that brass medallion tarnishes. In fact, it'll tarnish within hours of wearing it for a graduation ceremony. I can't wear it two days in a row. It fades that quickly. He tells us we have an, you know, an inheritance that won't fade away. And it's a, uh, one that's protected. Now, in, in, in the Greek language, and forgive me for using these words, but you'll, you'll see why I am. Uh, listen to these words, and, and there's alliteration and, and uh, assination. It sounds alike. Authartos means it's uh, incorruptible. Amiantos undefiled. Amarantas, 
doesn't fade away. Those three words he stacks because it's undying, undefiled, unfading, and he wants you to sort of remember, and it's sort of like when you think of your internal inheritance, these are some of the characteristics, and if that wasn't enough as he describes it, then he puts it into a tense that says, and it's all locked away in heaven for you. It's reserved in heaven for you. And so it'll be an unfailing. Put those four together. Look at them again on the screen. It's death-proof, incorruptible. It's sin-proof, undefilable. It's time-proof, won't fade away. And pardon this colloquialism, it's hell-proof. It's reserved where? Heaven, not hell. It, it, it's hell-proofed. It's, it's in this time, and Jeff and I were sitting or watching a football game, and in between the plays... When our timeouts and everything, I was asking him because of his specialties and his skills and abilities. And I was saying, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen in the, in, in the market? You know, what, what's going to happen? You know, we've got, you know, a pension fund at the seminary. We've got endowment funds for scholarships. Uh, the university here has it. And I, I said, what, what do you see on the horizon? And it's sort of going, who knows? Now, he knows more than that, so you can go talk to him. But, uh, you know, what, what, what's going to happen? None of us really know. But, uh, but what I love about this is that the inheritance that God has for you and for me, if we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, that inheritance is in a lockbox called God's heaven. And God alone has the key to that safe deposit box. It's the surest security in the universe. Listen to what the text said. He's he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ to obtain an inheritance that's imperishable and defiled, will not fade away. And I love this, reserved in heaven for me. I don't know what's going to happen by the time I retire. I don't know what's going to happen in this world. I mean, I hear that, you know, it's getting better, it's getting worse, it's going to go bad again, it's going to get, you know, and hello... Nobody knows, except with my inheritance. It's, it's, it's locked and protected. He uses a tense of a word that means that God is keeping it and has been keeping it. And in essence, it's what God has secured in the past that is still good for today and always will be. Kept. Reserved. In heaven. Nobody can get it. Wall Street can't ruin it. Government can't tax it. The economy can't mess with it. I can't make dumb mistakes with it. God's got it taken care of. Now, listen, how relevant would that be in the context when you're a group of people in the first century and you've lost your home, maybe you've lost members of the family, you've been scattered, you can't even stay at your same country, and the Jews don't like you, the Romans don't like you, unbelievers don't like you, you're just scattered abroad because of your faith in Christ. And what he wanted them to know and he wants you and I to know is they can take everything else from you, but whatever happens in this life is not the last chapter of your life. God's got a future, and it's eternal for you. I don't know about you, but I need that. I love, again, the way Chuck phrases it. He's got such a 
articulation with words. He says, is our place there in heaven? He says, is reserved, and I love this, under the safekeeping, under the constant omnipotent surveillance of Almighty God. Nothing can destroy it, defile it, diminish it, or displace it. Even at Dallas Seminary, like businesses and schools here, we have cameras, security cameras. In fact, we found out that it's just a little weird, we don't totally understand it, that people sometimes like to come into our bookstore and steal Bibles. Just a, you know, go figure. You know, I've been tempted to put a sign in a bookstore on our Bible section for steal. You know, you take it, you need it. You know, and, and, you, and you go to these places and that camera, you know, going like this. You know what? God's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. And he doesn't have to do this. It's just constant all the time. He's got it under control. He's got it surveyed. And it's safe. That's, that's one you don't even want to take to the bank. It's not secure enough. It's in the big bank. And it's yours. If you know Jesus Christ this morning as your personal Savior, that's an encouragement, an eternal inheritance. See, I've got a living hope now, but I've got an eternal inheritance that will one day complete that hope. But that's not all. He he wants to elaborate on that protection. And not only do I have an inheritance that's reserved in heaven, but then he goes on to talk about that I've got a divine protection And he he, he moves from the what to the who. We who uh, have this inheritance, we are, in the context, are protected. We're protected by God. How? The source is God's power. The means is through our faith. We've appropriated that. Why? The goal is the ultimate salvation ready. I love this phrase. That salvation that God has ready to be revealed at the last time ready to be revealed at the last time. The most secure security system in the universe is the protection of God. James M. Gray, speaking about that ultimate day and that ultimate salvation, says, who who can mind the journey when that's where the road leads? Don't you love that? Who could really mind the journey if that's where the road leads? leads. Salvation in the New Testament is a word that is deliverance from danger, uh, deliverance from disease. It also means to be saved from eternal condemnation, the judgment of God. But for the believer who that has already been settled at your salvation, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Romans 8.1. But one day you and I will be delivered from the very presence of sin itself. And so he's talking about This concept of being protected by God. It's a word that means, it's a military term that means to be guarded by a garrison that was sent to guard a city. Your life and mine is garrisoned about by God. He he stands as a sentinel over us all of our lives. And he guards and protects us. He says, for a salvation that whenever God wants to finish the clock of human history. Whenever God is finished putting his church together for us, whenever God is ready to finish that earthly kingdom on planet earth, and the last chapter of eternity gets opened, 
salvation from it all. No more death, no more danger, no more disease, no more sin, no question of condemnation. All of that will be gone. And God says, I just want you to know I have it ready. I love that. I, I just want you to know it's all taken care of and it's, and, and it's ready to be revealed whenever I choose the last day to be. It's an old poem, but I love it. Uh, forgive the these and the thous, but catch on with me. It says it this way, Jesus, these eyes have never seen that radiant form of thine. The veil of sense hangs dark between thy blessed face and mine. I see thee not, I hear thee not, uh, yet art thou oft with me. The earth that flears so dear a spot is where I meet with thee. Yea, though I have not seen and still must rest in faith alone, I love thee, dearest Lord, and will, unseen but not unknown. When death these mortal eyes shall seat, and still this throbbing heart, the rending veil shall thee reveal, O glorious thou art. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And the reasons to bless God are myriad, are wonderful. Protection is there. The inheritance is secure. I have hope. But that hope rests not in my performance, but in God's person and power. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Father, our only right response to your truth is to worship you. How blessed you are. And thank you for working through your son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish our salvation, our new birth. A hope now for an inheritance yet to be received. And salvation yet to be revealed. Father, by prayer this morning, if there be one or more in this room or listening to this message, who's not yet trusted in your Son as their Savior, and hence does not have the assurance of eternal life from you, I pray in the quietness of this moment that they would simply say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for rising from the dead to be able to give me life. I welcome you into my heart. I believe in you. I trust you alone for my salvation. And Father, for those of us for whom that was a previous decision of faith, may we never get over your grace, the wonder, the mercy. It's the motivation for us to bless you because you've blessed us. To love you in return for the great love with which you've shown us in Christ. We thank you for that blessing. It has these phenomenal attendant circumstances. May we bask in that blessing this week. With great thanksgiving in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor.
Mark, thank you for that reminder that uh, our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in uh, eternity with Christ. It's guarded, it's secure, so even though we are hated by the world, we are loved by Jesus Christ and we're secure in him. One of the things that really helps us uh, stay on that pathway when the world is attacking us is to have other believers around us reminding us that hope is in Christ and hope is not in this world. So I want to really encourage you before the semester slips away, make sure you get connected to other believers. Get into a, a Bible study or a home church group or something like that. Make sure you don't let that time slip away. Remember, next week we're going to continue our series. First Peter will be in chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. So if you want to get ahead, go ahead and read that section, and that's where we'll be next week. God bless you. Have a great week.